This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we tackle this pesky idea of predestination and election. Enough said, apparently. Yeah, that's our intro. There you go. <laughs> I'm sure that... Just a couple of minor words. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure our theologically-minded re- uh, listeners that we had uh, last episode were probably a little perturbed that I just kind of like... I mentioned I'd be coming back to it, but I just kind of like skipped the whole predestination thing. So if we have any Calvinist listeners out there, they're probably freaking out right now. Like, hey, let's deal with this. And all of our Bible students and seminary students are saying, hey, wait a minute. Don't you dare skip that. Well, we're not going to skip it. Let's have a word about predestination. For anyone who's familiar with the basic theological conversations swirling in this Western world of ours, you've probably come across or wrestled with the idea of predestination and determinism. Determinism. It's a hard word to say. Fun nonetheless. Does God predestine and select a group of people, the elect, quote unquote, for salvation? How far does God's sovereignty stretch? Do we still have free will? I can remember a younger version of myself, Brent Billings. Uh, causing endless problems in Bible college as a five-point hyper-Calvinist for my freshman and sophomore year. Boy, was I a pain in their neck. Woo! I have since come to learn that we often argue in this Western world of ours, we often argue about questions that the Bible isn't asking. And I have a good friend that says, when you ask questions the Bible isn't asking, you always get, Brent? Uh, Answers that you don't need? Yeah, the wrong answers. The wrong answers. The wrong answers. When you ask questions the Bible's not asking, you always get the wrong answers. So learning to study, uh, you know, since I've got, since I spent time in Israel and, and learning under Ray and all those folks, uh, learning to study of the Bible from its original point of view, from the view of the original author and that original audience, I have discovered we usually misunderstand the, com- the concepts that perplex us the most in our theological worldviews. The answers do not come in trying to explain the concept better. Instead, help lies in understanding the concept within the context of biblical conversation. So it's not figuring out more deeper theology. It's just figuring out the context. That's going to help us out. To be clear, if you would have asked an early Jewish believer or a Gentile convert if God was sovereign, determining the future and intimately interacting with the details of our daily lives, they would have looked at you kind of with this funny expression and said, of course. But if you would have asked them if we have free will, and if the future is undetermined with endless possibilities, they would have also said, of course. And I know this is inconceivable. 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 In our world. Obscure movie reference, number one. Inconceivable. But in the world of the Bible, they understand the nature of paradox and what we sometimes call double point truth. To use the words of a rabbi I heard one day, I have never thought about that before. They just don't think about those questions the way that we do. They accept paradox for what it is, and they move on to better questions. So let's do that. Let's move on to better questions. What is the first century understanding of predestination? Their understanding of predestination revolved around the idea of oracle. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, they had oracles who received messages from the gods of the underworld, typically Apollo, but lots of different worldviews, not just the Greek and Roman worldview. Oracle could, refu- could refer to the temple building itself. The, the person receiving the messages could be an oracle, or they could also give an oracle. So as Ray told me back in Turkey, you go to an oracle to get an oracle from an oracle. Seems confusing initially, but eventually you come to understand the concept. In the Roman world, there were four recognized oracles, one of the most famous being the oracle at Delphi. When we travel to Turkey, I take my students to the ruins of the Oracle at Didyma. You've been there, Brent? 
I have. Remember that place? It was substantial. <laughs> it's incredible. It was apparently a big deal. Yeah. The concept, while elaborate, is somewhat easy to explain. I would recommend, by the way, we'll put this in the show notes as well, watching, um, there's a lesson by my teacher, Ray, on his on his series that the world may know. Uh, volume six, there's a lesson there called The Very Words of God. And you can see the oracle that I take uh, our students to there in Didyma. The whole series is called In the Dust of the Rabbi, and it's one of those five lessons. Okay. Yep. That's the title of the volume five. It's got a handful of lessons. One of my favorite volumes, by the way. If anybody's like, I don't want to spend money on the whole thing. Well, that's one of my favorite DVDs. You'll see how much it's uh, race teaching has influenced my own. Uh, but people would travel sometimes hundreds of miles bringing gifts to get a message from the oracle. Once their question was posed, they would wait. Eventually, the oracle would be pronounced, and the formula, as far as we can tell from history, was pretty straightforward. If you offer blank to the gods, and if you do blank, then it is predestined that blank will happen. I'll say that again. If you offer X sacrifice, and if you go do Y, then it is predestined that Z will happen. For the people of the Bible, they understood the discussion of predestination to be couched in an assumption of your obedience. If you choose to do what the gods demand, then it is predestined that you will find success. So let's return to Romans 8, which we actually read last time, Brent, and see how Paul talks about predestination and try to see it through the eyes of the original Roman audience. Give us the verses we're reading here. Uh, Starting in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So God has plans for all of us. And God is at work in the world, working all things out for the greater good of his redemptive purposes. And he has predestined us to partner with him in this work. He declared that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus so that we could become the, here's a session one reference, Brent, the Bechor. Remember what the Bechor meant? What did that mean? The firstborn. The firstborn, the child who partners with the father to spread daddy's values to the rest of his kids. Because this was his predetermined plan, he put a call on their lives and in their hearts. And because of this intention, he also justified them freely through faith so that they would be equipped for the task at hand. And because of this great work, he also glorified them and raised them up from their low position. Please remember that this is the passage leading to the pronouncement, if God is for us, who can be against us? Doesn't it fit that so well? But all this talk presumes that we would accept the call and recognize what we have been made for and the path laid out for us. And we can probably see a few of those uh, intended behors from session one who did not answer the call. Absolutely. But I think in this worldview, they would have said, well, they were still predestined for greatness. They just chose to not do what God had outlined for them. If you go to an oracle and receive your message but decide not to follow the instructions, then all bets are off. The predestination only matters in their world. I know it didn't matter. In, I know this is not what John Calvin would say, but, but that's what it meant to the Romans who originally heard this passage. It, it only matters if you do what the oracle tells you. If you offer blank, and if you do blank, then blank will happen. You have been made for an incredible partnership with God. 
If you choose to walk in faithfulness and trust his promises, it is predestined that you will be conformed into the image of Jesus. God believes so much in his predetermined plan that he extends this call to you now. He exonerates you, justifying you and declaring you righteous if you are willing to trust in his promise of love and grace. And for all those who agree to join him, he raises them up out of their struggle and despair, glorifying them and setting them apart for the mission. So it's really important uh, that we talk about that before moving on, because the entire topic seems to cloud our ability to read Romans 9 through 11 in context. Once we begin the Calvinism-Arminianism debate, we completely lose sight of the purpose of what Paul's doing in Romans. We do this so much in Romans, which is so ironic. It's the one letter that we spend so much time in, and man, do we jack it up so badly, in my opinion. What Paul has been talking about since the beginning of the letter has been pretty straightforward, and we seem to lose track here towards the end of the letter. Let us remind ourselves, Paul has been building a very reasoned, logical, systematic case for the acceptance of a blended family of God. This family is struggling to figure out the place of new Gentile converts, mature Gentile believers, and the Jewish presence, which has come back home, that serves as the root of this community. Paul has argued that we are all a part of this family because of this faith that saves us. It is the exact same faith that every single member of God's family is justified and declared righteous before him. It's by the exact same faith. It is this justification which sets us free and does not allow condemnation to reign in any form in our hearts. But this is a hard truth for Paul's main Jewish audience. Remember, Paul has already made multiple comments about his audience being people who are trained in the law. That means it's the Jewish portion. He's talking to the Jews, as well as another comment coming up here in chapter 11. This idea of Gentiles being included and swept up by this scandalous grace would be a hard truth to swallow. Not impossible, but very difficult. And so to this Jewish audience, Paul continues. Go ahead, Brent. Keep us reading. Just to point out, we are skipping a couple of verses in chapter 8, but we, re- we, we did those last episodes. Every so, verse. So don't think. Every yeah. verse has been taken care of. We, shout, got, we got some verses twice. Shout out to uh, Jesse Tomlinson. He, he uh, gave us a, an official trademark on the every verse <laughs> idea. Uh, yes. <laughs> so here we are in uh, Romans 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul's heart is full of love and breaks over his Jewish brethren. His heart breaks over all of his Jewish brethren who struggle to accept this gospel as they try to lead this new church. Please let us remind ourselves not to beat up those silly Jews and to identify with the fact that those of us who are well-seasoned believers in church, there's a lot of them that listen to this podcast, we fit this same seat and we struggle with the exact same things. He breaks into a poetic benediction. Brent didn't quite break into song as he read that, as he ought to have, but nevertheless, we'll give him a break. <laughs> I, I Well, yeah, I didn't know. <laughs> 
Well, Paul broke into poetic song about the blessing of being God's Bechor and the very special calling that they've had for centuries. It is their story to live and to tell. It's their family. It's their adoption. It's their covenants, their law, their text, their lineage, and their Messiah, whom we speak of now. Go ahead, Brent. Keep reading. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, Brent, read that very first verse just one more time. How does that first sentence land in the new NIV? It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Yeah, I like that phrase. It's not as though the word of God had failed. On the heels of this benediction, Paul says, this is what the story of God has always been about. Going to the very beginning of the patriarchs and the founding of this family, Paul points out that God has always chosen to work through promise to bring the unlikely and the outsider in. Not only does he work through the Bechor, but he also works through the barren and the secondborn as well. Remember, actually, Brent, almost every character was not the Bechor in Genesis. Like, this is how God loves to work. He'll work through the Bechor, but he's just as ready to work through those that aren't the Bechor. So Paul's heart breaks for his people as he rejoices in their story, their story. But it's their story that is meant to point to the very struggle that they're having in this very moment. It is usually at this point where everyone begins to lose their minds as Bible interpreters. People being all worked up about predestination, we immediately begin focusing our attention on God's rejection rather than the point of what Paul, (laughs) what I believe is obvious, Paul's obvious argument. While we tend to focus on Esau I hated, what we lose in the theological jostling is the fact that Paul is talking about whom God accepts, not whom God rejects. Paul's point is that he loved Jacob, not that he rejected Esau, but all we focus on is the rejection. Thousand to three, Brent, still hanging around here in session four. (laughs) This entire argument is about Paul pleading with his Jewish brethren to accept the truth that God wants to show kindness to their Gentile counterparts. This passage isn't being quoted because of Esau. It's being quoted because of God's choosing to validate his promises and work through Jacob. It's not about God's rejection. It's about God's compassion. This should be abundantly clear in the very next paragraph. Go ahead and read it, Brent. Listen to this. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Wait a minute. What two things, Brent? Mercy and compassion. Those are good things, right? I think so. So apparently this isn't about the rejection. Apparently this is about the acceptance. Paul asks the Jewish audience if this inclusion of the Gentiles is unfair. By no means. For God gets to show kindness to anyone he desires. Notice the quotation says nothing about rejection, only acceptance, mercy, compassion. It is God's prerogative to decide who gets to receive his kindness. Keep reading, Brent. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, 
that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. All right. So again, we usually are so quick to run to God's rejection, God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart, that we miss the greater point of Paul's argument. Paul has just finished saying exactly what he had said earlier in the letter. Man is not dependent on his own efforts to find God's mercy and grace. This justification and acceptance comes from faith and is a reality because of the mercy of God. If you remember, and we're going to link our episode in the show notes, Brent, all the way back in session one, we talked about the, the, the work that God was doing with Pharaoh. We talked about how God was pursuing even Pharaoh, even Pharaoh, like the most abusive, destructive, corrupt leader of the largest superpower God was even willing to pursue him. Like, go back and listen to that episode. I remember getting an email from Session 1 listeners uh, trying to figure out the Pharaoh thing, and they were using this Romans passage to try to interpret the Pharaoh thing. And I said, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't run ahead to Romans and let a faulty reading of Romans make you mess up the interpretation of Exodus. Let's get to Romans when we get to Romans. And now we get to see why that's so important. It's episode 19, by the way, that we're referring to. Episode 19. This passage is not speaking about God deciding who gets in and who is left out. This passage is pleading with all the folks who think they are in to consider the kindness, the mercy, the reckless pursuit of a God who desires desires to bless all nations. But this conversation is still not over yet. I stated that I believe we miss the entire point of Paul's larger argument in this section of Romans because we immediately get hung up on the theological projections that weren't originally in the conversation, like sovereignty, election, predestination, all that kind of stuff. Paul's larger conversation is about God's willingness to show mercy. He is trying to speak to his Jewish listeners and tell them that God always has been in the business of showering mercy and grace on people who don't belong. The word of God has not failed them. Rather, it has borne witness to this truth throughout the ages. This inclusion of the Gentiles into the fullness of God's story and family is far from unfair. It's the very nature of who God is and who God always has been. So let's pick up where we left off. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? So we read a passage in this previous light. We hear it talking about blame in our election or salvation. But now that we have a maybe a more contextual light, I think the context of this conversation shows us that Paul's imaginary rebuttal is asking a far deeper question. This Jewish audience is going to respond to God's sovereign show of mercy to the Gentiles with this reworded rebuttal. Then why does God ask us to follow him and partner with him and then hold us accountable to our actions? If he's just going to throw open the floodgates of acceptance anyway, if God's just going to pursue all men and all nations and all these Gentiles, then he's ultimately going to have his way. And our part of the story means nothing. But Paul tells his projected audience to remember their place. He is the potter. They are the clay. He knows why he makes vessels. He knows how each, how he intends to use each one of them and how he will accomplish his purpose with each vessel that he creates. Keep reading, Brent. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, 
bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. So Paul reminds the reader that God has the right to use the same lump of clay to make vessels that he will use as fine china, but also vessels to store last night's leftovers. He's the potter, and he understands his own intentions. But then Paul makes a startling statement. I believe we have a tendency to misread because of all the theological nonsense that we hold on to. Paul says, what if? What if God chose to make some vessels that were prepared for destruction? What if God chose to make vessels out of the clay, and we are sure that they are doomed for the garbage heap? Cracked and beaten up, good for nothing, worthless. What if God did this on purpose? These vessels Paul refers to are obviously a reference to the pagan Gentiles. People like Pharaoh, vessels prepared for destruction. But Paul says, God wanted to show his wrath and make his power known, and so he created those vessels, and then, what was the phrase, Brent? Bore with... Great patience. Bore with great patience those vessels prepared for destruction. So did he destroy them? I don't know yet. (laughs) Well, not yet. He bore with great patience. We looked at two vessels and went, well, that's for last night's leftovers, and then we're throwing it away. But God, what if he didn't throw away? What if he... Go ahead and read the next little portion. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? What if, what if God did all this on purpose in order to show us his glory and his mercy, which was the point of this passage, was it not Brent Billings? It was. Okay, just checking. What if God did all this to show us Jews and people on the inside? all us religious folk, the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. What if he did all of this to show us his incredible plan and the riches of his glory, to to shower mercy and acceptance on those objects prepared for destruction? That, my friend, would be scandalous. Paul then quotes two major prophets who are announcing Israel's failure to live according to God's plan. So these are, there's going to be some remezes here. We're not going to pull apart the remez, but they're here. Trust me. And we have the tools. So all of our listeners, go figure it out. Paul reminds them that they too have experienced what it means to be objects prepared for destruction. And they too know what it means to have God bear with great patience and shower his mercy on them. The story of Hosea is not a pretty one. And the woes of Isaiah did not bear great tidings. Go ahead and read what he quotes here. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. I recommend going and looking at the context of all those quotations and tell me Paul isn't preaching an intentional sermon in the middle of his, in between the lines of what he's quoting. But I digress. Paul will then begin to shift gears by pointing out this is the same trajectory the nations have been on with God. Those Gentile believers who worship in Rome have the same faith and have experienced the same acceptance of the same good news gospel from God. Go ahead, Brent. 
What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Okay, Paul's point in that passage. It, what are you trying to say here? That the Gentiles somehow have obtained faith, but the Jews somehow have missed it? And Paul says, yeah. That's kind of what Paul says. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They missed it in this moment. Paul closes with an unbelievably brilliant Gezera Shava. We've talked about Gezera Shava before, where he ties two different passages from Isaiah, one from Isaiah 8.14 and the other from Isaiah 28.16. And he uses the, the, the theme of stone to do so. By creating this Isaiah quotation, Paul sets up the condemnation of Isaiah 8 which says that God has placed a stone that the people of Jerusalem will stumble over as a trap and a snare. He combines it with a prophecy that says those who trust in that stone will be saved. By making this stone Jesus, Paul is issuing an invitation to his Jewish audience not to be tripped up by this hard teaching of inclusion for the Gentiles, but to trust in Jesus. At the same time, Paul is alluding to the fact that these Gentiles are already trusting in Jesus and finding freedom and salvation. It's a stunning textual move by Paul. Absolutely brilliant. Indeed, this will be a hard truth. For most of our listeners, this is good news because most of them are Gentiles. And yet for those Gentiles who call themselves believers and have found themselves in the community of faith for some time, there is a real opportunity for us to open our ears and consider whether we have swapped out some of the labels and the details for other things in our day and age. Is God still the potter? Does God still get to choose who he wants to shower mercy on? Even today is the point we ought to be making to people not about a morality code, but about the person of Jesus? Are we really inviting people to put their trust in him and find a justification by faith alone? Or do we too struggle with the stone of stumbling, this scandalous grace of Jesus? Do we too seek to make people pursue a righteousness that comes from behavior rather than a righteousness that comes from God? What if God is showering his grace on all of those people in our lives? I don't want to read that again. I want us to really think about this. What if God is showering his grace on all of those people in our lives just to remind us of what he's up to? Forgiveness, mercy, acceptance, a potter making his vessels. So this message from Paul about a potter, that's going to be a long conversation today, Brent, because we want to keep it all together. We don't want to break it up. Because this message is tough to wrestle with when you find yourself sitting on the inside of the conversation. But Paul also wants to be crystal clear that this is not some wholesale rejection of God's partners who struggle with the purposes and the intentions of God. Far from it, Paul longs for God's people to fully understand what God has been up to from the beginning. Go ahead and keep reading, Brent. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So Paul says that this faulty Jewish perspective has an incredible zeal for God and a tenacious commitment to follow after him. 
It's actually this zeal that has the tendency to provide distraction. For while they attempt to follow God so passionately, they can find themselves trying to establish a righteousness of their own. Think about the the conversation we had about the Pharisees. Something Paul spoke about in the opening chapters of Romans. He talked about this. Paul reminds the readers that Jesus is the culmination of the law. He is the very fulfillment of the law, and he shows us that this righteousness from God is for anyone who is willing to have faith. Go ahead, Brent. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. People who live by the law, please note, not under the law, but by the law, find life when they walk in obedience to God's commands. We made this exact same point in Galatians. However, Paul uses Deuteronomy to remind them not to be deceived into thinking that righteousness is this complicated thing that must be parsed and explained and assisted. No, it's something that we have on our lips and written on our hearts. Keep going, Brent. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Paul says this message is already in our mouths and on our hearts. Paul then rips off a first century imperial propaganda slogan to express the message of the gospel. Rome had a saying for whenever Caesar was about to go out on one of his bread and circus stunts. Bread and Circus was a a public relations effort by the empire to build allegiance to Caesar and his throne. Caesar would go throughout the empire and with great public pomp, a.k.a. circus, he would give away bread, a.k.a. bread, and uh, blessing to the people of Rome. They called it bread and circus. The saying would be circulated uh, throughout the empire. If you proclaim with your mouth that Caesar is Lord, you will be saved. The message was clear. If you give your allegiance to Rome, you will benefit from Caesar's kingdom. If you do not, well, all bets are off. Paul says we have a message that we proclaim about God's kingdom. If we declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart the truth and promises of resurrection, then we will be saved. Paul says this message is not complicated, but something we understand. Paul then makes a a distinction between the heart and the mouth. While the mouth is obviously about proclamation, the heart in a Jewish sense is about our will. If you remember from session one, it's about our will and our obedience. Paul says this message is about the union of our statements and our behavior. Go ahead, Brent. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So still working off of the remez mentioned previously, Paul says the same belief, faith, trust is available for any person, Jew or Gentile. If they have this authentic belief, they will respond with their own professions and obedience. Their salvation will not be denied them. Go ahead. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. However, how will they ever make sense of this faith unless those who are rich in faith are sent to tell them? Paul calls on his Jewish brethren to take ownership of the story to which they are ambassadors. His audience is still Jewish here. 
He calls them to take hold of God's amazing grace and glorious plan and become heralds of this good news to the Gentiles, to go and invite them in. And just for some textual icing on the cake, Paul then quotes Isaiah 52, a passage which speaks about Israel learning her lesson in captivity and hearing about the goodness and greatness of their God. It's an incredibly fitting passage quotation. The Isaiah passage ends with a description of all nations seeing the salvation of God and his plan being laid bare to the ends of the earth. That is brilliant. The takeaway is that it is crucial for God's people to accept the story God wants to tell and not the version of the story that they hope he tells. It is important that we understand God is not simply working with a chosen and redeemed group of people so that they would be more right than everyone else. No. Instead, God has put this awareness in the hearts of all mankind. It is his people's privilege, honor, and calling to go and spread the word, to make his mercy known to the very ends of the earth. But sometimes it is hard to go and spread the good news that we long to keep for ourselves. So often, without a conscious effort, we hoard all this grace to ourselves, and we miss out on the primary mission of God in the world. This is where Paul continues the conversation as we keep reading. Go ahead, Brent. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. (laughs) Of course they did. Paul agrees this message is often difficult to extend to others. And he points out that not all of the Israelites throughout their history wanted to accept the good news of God's great restoration project. Quoting Isaiah, Paul reasons that maybe these Israelites didn't know the message. Maybe they hadn't heard or been taught. But then Paul says this isn't the case. Go ahead. Picking up here, of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Now he quotes Psalm 19. Paul does something that's incredibly consistent with the ongoing argument. The psalm speaks of the heavens giving voice to the goodness and greatness of God. This message from creation itself goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Paul has been arguing that Gentiles have all the ability to know God and believe in his promises, even without extensive education in Torah or the word of God. They are able to hear the word of God, quote unquote, quite clearly. If this is true, and if Gentiles are able to worship Adonai by simply observing creation around them, then the people of God will certainly be without an excuse. It will be their own religiosity that gets in the way. And to be sure, I hope that everyone realizes these principles apply to all religious people today. I hope that our listeners understand I'm not trying to pick on the Jewish people. Not at all. Instead, we should be able to learn from these timeless truths in our own experience. Paul proceeds to quote more passages from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 65. Read it to us, Brent. But I tell you what, this this whole chapter of Romans is like the case for knowing your Old Testament. Oh, my goodness gracious. Absolutely. (laughs) Especially Deuteronomy and Isaiah. We're getting a lot of mileage out of those two. And you can see he's talking to a Jewish audience here. It's just, it's brilliant. What he's doing here is absolutely brilliant. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now, if you do the work to look back at the context of those quotations, you will understand why Paul is using them in his argument. Both those passages will speak of Israel's disobedience and refusal to partner with God in the work he's doing in the world. 
In Isaiah 65, the prophet proclaims that nations that weren't even looking for God are going to find him. But his own people have been obstinate and stiff-necked. The quotations leave the Jewish reader with a question. Will we repeat the same mistakes again? Truly, for all of us who had claimed to be followers of Jesus, the question extends itself to us naturally. In light of all this, it's truly amazing God doesn't abandon and reject his stubborn people. All of us, not just the Jews. But no, his grace rings true for all of us, even the stiff-necked. Go ahead, Brent. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appeared to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Paul makes it clear that God is not rejecting his people, but neither is Paul rejecting his own brethren and heritage. He has not abandoned his Jewish identity in the least. But he understands that he is a true Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. He also says that God is always saving a remnant of people who are willing to partner with him to carry out his purposes. Paul reminds us of Elijah and his self-righteous perspective at Horeb, how he was able to think he was the only one who loved God. But God reminded Elijah that he was at work in ways Elijah could never understand. The same was true for those believers in Rome. And the same is true for each one of us today. Go ahead, Brent. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear, to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. And we could take some more time to unpack those quotations, and I hope all of our listeners do. The more I study Paul, the more amazed I become at his use of the text and his ability to teach rabbinically. You haven't always thought so highly of Paul. I did not. Oh, and not that many years ago. Super frustrated with Paul. Man. And then I started seeing what he was doing rabbinically, and I went, this is brilliant. His quotation and teaching mechanics are fantastic. And this would be expected from a student of Gamaliel. Paul quotes what seems to be Deuteronomy 29. Although it's not a clean quotation, there is some discussion about whether Paul is employing another Gezerah Shavah and combining this Deuteronomy quotation with another quote from Isaiah 29. This would make all kinds of sense if that's true, considering the context of those two passages. But let's stick with Deuteronomy 29 and note that the context of the quotation, Deuteronomy is the record of the renewal of the covenant. And the passage quoted is the section where they are remembering that they are the ones who have seen the miraculous deeds of the Lord in Egypt. It is their story to tell. And who would understand that redemption of God better than those who redeemed from Egypt? A fitting quotation to say the least, in my mind. This is then combined with a quote from Psalm 69, verses 22 to 23, for anybody wants to look at it. A psalm where David has said earlier, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. May that be the prayer of each of us who calls ourselves a child of God and a follower of Jesus. May we constantly remind ourselves of God's incredible grace and his pursuit of all nations and all peoples. May we keep 
this mission of God in the forefront of our minds that we might be appropriate ambassadors to his work. And may those who choose to hope in the Lord not be disgraced because of us. Instead, may they find the acceptance, love, and belonging that God longs to give all people, the same acceptance we have experienced. May we be counted amongst the remnant God is using to put the world back together. All right, let's come down the home stretch here. Brent, I know we're long. This is a long discussion today. We're going to set a new record here today, I think. Well, maybe. All right. All right, so Paul has already mentioned that this certainly does not mean the Israelites were cast off or forsaken by God, but now he takes the time to say it yet again. Go ahead. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Ooh, a little Calvachomer action there. Mm. Paul expresses great optimism in the people of God and their ability to learn from the path God has them on to to correct their trajectory. Only this God, who is in the business of redeeming broken things, could take their mistakes and turn them into glory. Paul points out that God used their stumbling to bring the Gentiles into the family. If this is true, how much more could, no, not could, Paul says, will, how much more will their repentance bring? When the people of God see his goodness and his plan and decide to partner with what God is doing in the world, just imagine all the things that could be accomplished with that group of people. A little side note here, Brent. What did your um, new NIV say about uh, inclusion? That very last line there. What does it say there? Uh, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? All right. See, I, I hate that translation. The, the old NI 80, uh, NIV 84, the old NIV, used to translate it fullness, as does the King James, by the way. The translation of inclusion only heightens the misconceptions of replacement theology. We're not going to get into that here, but uh, garbage theology. No, just garbage. I don't typically call theology garbage, but that one is garbage. Uh, since the they in this passage is clearly the Jews. The Jews aren't being included into anything. It's their story to begin with. It is the Gentiles who are being included, and that very inclusion is what drives the writing of Romans. But indeed, that's where the passage heads exactly next. Paul shifts his attention to the Gentiles and is kind enough to let all of his readers know that he's actually talking to the Gentiles. Listen to this. Go ahead, Brent. I'm talking to you, Gentiles. Hey, that's a pretty clear statement. (laughs) Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry, in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So Paul's been talking to who up to this point, Brent, very clearly? To the Jews. To the Jews. And now he says, now I want to talk to you Gentiles. And Paul says that a large part of his ministry is done in the hope that his own brethren would see the story of God correctly and join him in blessing all nations. Session one, gospel, Abraham. Paul isn't just in this for the Gentiles. He's in it for his own Jewish family as well. He wants all people to understand the story of God and his plan to restore all humanity. The phrase, arouse my own people to envy, in the Greek, definitely carries the idea of provocation. It is Paul's desire to prod and provoke his fellow Jews to do the right thing in the way they interact with Gentiles in their world. 
Paul also reminds his readers that God's story is a Jewish story. If God has chosen to work through the Jewish people, then this Jewish story must be the right one and it must be enough. If this story is based on the right ideas, if the lump of dough is holy, and if the root of the story is holy, then the rest of the story is going to share in that goodness. Go ahead. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. All right, still talking to which audience, Brent? To the Gentiles. Yep, Paul tells his Gentile readers to make sure they check their arrogance at the door, because a proper understanding of the story they are a part of will lead them to speechless humility. Paul points out that if Israel was a cultivated olive tree, uh, a common image, by the way, in the scriptures for Israel. Then the Gentiles were a wild, uncultivated olive tree. In the ancient world of the Middle East, the contrast would be a stunning one. A cultivated olive tree is a beautiful sight to behold, with, bright, with light green leaves and big, beautiful olives. The cultivated olive tree is incredibly pleasing to the eye. The olive tree, grown gone wild, on the other hand, is stunted in its growth, producing pitiful leaves and virtually no fruit. It is not very attractive to look at and useless for production. Yet Paul says the story of God works in such a way that when the people of God stumbled, he pruned his cultivated olive tree, chopping off some of the branches that didn't bear any fruit and preparing it for a new growth. God then took wild olive tree branches and grafted them into his cultivated tree. Now, I'm no botanist, but I did have one tell me that such an idea would be craziness. The wild olive tree branches would have a negative effect on the purity of the cultivated olive tree once the grafting process was complete. As wild branches drew off the nourishing sap of the main tree, the rest of the tree's productivity would be drawn back. And yet Paul says this is what God does. God's gospel is foolishness. God's love is scandalous. God's forgiveness is complete. As this lesson gets longer and longer, I can see that we need to break We've been talking for a while, Brent Billings. We need to break this into another part. So it's a good place to stop. We have much to consider. Most of our listeners will be Gentiles, and Paul gives us all a lot to ponder about the story of God and how he's been at work. God has been at work for thousands of years trying to bless all nations. Way back in the beginnings of Genesis, God selected a partner and built a nation he desired to put at the crossroads of the earth and help him restore the world, a kingdom of priests who would show the world what God is like. But God's people, Jew and Gentile alike, have often lost the plot of the story. We forget the scandalous nature of the God we claim to serve and worship, and we begin to serve self. Throughout this story, God has always corrected, sometimes gently and sometimes with great discipline. God has pruned his tree when, un when necessary and invited his children to new levels of fruitfulness. And somewhere along the way, the great gardener decided in his infinite wisdom that it was time to graft into this cultivated tree some of those wild olive branches he loved so much. He decided it was time to display the beauty of inclusion in this tree that is his people. God's tree has become his masterpiece. You will say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, Paul said. But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. 
Paul has turned his attention to the Gentiles and invited them to consider and not lose sight of the mystery of their inclusion. He painted the picture of a cultivated olive tree pruned by the gardener who has grafted branches in that didn't belong, branches from a wild olive tree. These branches represented the Gentiles who had been included in the covenant community of God's family. Paul had asked his Gentile readers to keep themselves from arrogance, thinking that the story was all about them and forgetting that it was they who had been scandalously included on the basis of faith. Go ahead, Brent, read us next little bit. So much for that break, huh? Hey, it's coming. Don't you worry. Right, I can right. see it. Light at the end of the right, tunnel. Okay, almost there. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Paul asked the Gentiles to keep in mind the kindness and sternness of God. The kindness of God is seen in his radical inclusion and faithful mercy shown to all people. He wishes to hold a stern standard to his own people, a kingdom of priests who represent him to the world around them. Having already warned them that they too would face the same dangers of the pruning process, he now reminds them again. But this time, Paul couples it with a positive observation. If God would not hesitate to prune the grafted branches as well as the natural, it only stands to reason the same God would love to grant the natural branches back in. Realizing this metaphor breaks down, I mean, what kind of branches bear fruit after they've been chopped off, right? Paul insists that their repentance is still a good possibility. Go ahead. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So again, Paul calls this inclusion of the Gentiles a mystery. Did you catch that, Brian? Mystery. For the Jewish people, this idea is a scandal. It's hard to accept. And even Paul says he doesn't understand it in its fullness. But Paul reiterates, he wants to make this known so that the Gentiles won't become conceited. This struggle and stumbling on Israel's part has taken place so that they, the Gentiles, could be adopted into the family of God. And again, in some of the older translations, we have an issue that has led to much confusion and the horrible spread of replacement theology. Ugh. Replacement theology espouses this idea that God abandoned Israel as the chosen people of covenant and began working with the church in the New Testament. He replaced the two. He replaced the one with the other, should I say. It encourages the idea that God started a new thing, and now all people are invited into that new thing called the church. Now, please note this is clearly not what Paul is arguing. Paul did not say God planted a new tree. Paul said that God pruned the original cultivated tree and is constantly tending and giving it life. He decided to graft into that same original tree some wild olive tree branches. Paul states this more than once so the Gentiles would understand this clearly and not become conceited or arrogant. Replacement theology is the fulfillment of that conceited arrogance that Paul warned against. In some older translations, we read, uh, we used to read, until the full number of Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved. But this rendering is not only inaccurate to the Greek, but it reads incorrectly in the English, giving the impression that there is a new Israel being saved for the Gentiles. As a translation we saw earlier rendered appropriately, the passage should read in this way, your translation said, Brent, in this way or in this manner or in some translations thus. Although they do hedge it, the footnote says and so. Ooh. Ew, icky. 
Not wanting to tick off all those replacement theologians, I think. And so in this way, in this manner, thus all Israel will be saved, preserving a reading that maintains God's original story, original plan, original people, and original promises, let alone Paul's clear original argument. The inclusion of the Gentiles is intended to provoke God's people to repentance, remembering their story and mission in the world, and in this manner, all of God's people will find salvation. And if there were any doubt about that above argument, it should be put to rest after reading Paul's very next statement. And as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Irrevocable. <laughs> that came out of... <laughs> that came off the top shelf. Yeah, it did. Dusted that off all of a sudden. <laughs> what, what was the argument about that? I don't know. Just how to say it, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So indeed, this God is out to redeem all nations. His promises, his gifts, his call are irrevocable. (laughs) That's my rendering. They're irrevocable, and he has incredible ways of using our brokenness and mistakes to help bring redemption to others. If we will only be humble enough to remember where we came from. And I've been pushing so hard, and this podcast is so long, Brent, because it's one conversation I didn't want to break up, and I've been pushing to get to this doxology, because this doxology, in light of everything we've been talking about in this long podcast, is the perfect way to close down this conversation. Go ahead. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Hey, I'll tell you what, we'll give the listeners a break on the next episode, nice and short. Okay. I don't know if that's a promise or not, but that's my intention. (laughs) All right, we'll see what happens. Uh, Thanks for sticking it out with us on this blockbuster episode. Probably our longest. We'll see. We'll see how it comes down. Coming right up on an hour right here. Yeah, pretty close. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the Baymaw Podcast. We will talk to you again soon. I told you it would be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable.